what a great privilege to be here uh, in this pulpit and with uh, these friends, uh, all of you and especially the Hollands. Uh, they, they have just become dear, dear friends of ours. We go back quite a few years, actually, in terms of acquaintance, but have gotten to know them uh, better over these past years, and we're so grateful. And thank you so much, uh, Pastor Rick, for your kindness to allow me to stand here behind this pulpit. What, what an enormous privilege and responsibility this is. Well, we're going to be looking this morning at a glorious subject. I, I think in the day in which we live, we can, we can get discouraged with the way things are going, and we can lose sight of where everything is heading. And uh, I, I think it's, in, it's important for Christian people to keep in mind the big picture, that God is on his throne, that Christ is over all things, and indeed everything is working according to plan. There, there are no hiccups here. There, there, there are no failures. Uh, there are no ways in which God's plan and purpose and decreed will is being frustrated by events that are happening in our world. And everything is on schedule to enable us to arrive at our new home, right? So the title of my sermon this morning is Heaven Coming Home for the First Time. Now, that's intriguing, isn't it? It's a little bit odd because you think home, that's a place you've been to many, many times. That's, that's a place that's comfortable, uh, a place that you enjoy being at where you can take your shoes off and, and feel like you're, you're, uh, you're, you're where, where you ought to be. What do you mean coming home for the first time? Well, I came up with this idea after re- rereading a portion of C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, which is the, the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia series. And uh, it's interesting, in this last part of The Last Battle, he depicts heaven, the new Narnia, as he calls it, uh, he depicts heaven as a place in which there is great continuity with this life. I mean, goodness, we'll, we'll talk about this in a moment. We are on earth uh, we're, we're physical beings that inhabit a physical environment. There's continuity with life now and life then, but there's also discontinuity. There is a greater experience. It's more glorious, more beautiful, more radiant, and he tries to capture that image as he discusses this new Narnia. So listen to these words from the last battle. He says, the new, the new Narnia, he writes was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and he neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life though I never knew it until now. So indeed, this is the place the Lord has prepared for us. And he tells us a fair bit in Scripture about this future reality that that we will inhabit, uh, that we will inherit, this glorious place we call heaven. And if you wonder why does he tell us so much about heaven, when, when we're living here now, we're not there yet. And I think the answer is pretty obvious that what we know of heaven then informs us of how we should live life now. Does that make sense? I mean, we have a vision for where God is taking us, and doesn't that end goal provide for us direction 
in terms of how we should orient our lives now in light of heaven then. So, indeed, the sermon that I have prepared this morning really does follow these two main points of life then, and we'll look at five different aspects of of heaven as we see it in Scripture, and then shift to implications for life now and look there at five different implications for how we should live life as those who are anticipating heaven that is to come. So follow along with me. Now, if, if some of you are worried about a sermon that has 10 points to it, just, just think of it as a sermon with two points, right? Life then and then life now. So just two points with a little bit of expansion of those. Well, let's consider these together. First of all, life then. What will heaven be like? Five things I want to point to that we see in Scripture in regard to this new reality that we will inherit. First of all, heaven is a place that is real, physical, material, and eternal. That is, it goes on forever and ever. It's a place that is real, physical, material, and eternal. Indeed, we will be in glorified bodies in heaven. One of the most beautiful statements of this comes from the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 at the end of the chapter, verses 20 and 21. Listen to these words from Paul. Our citizenship is in heaven. So indeed, we already have a residence there. You have an address, you know, of your home in heaven that God has prepared for you. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself." I'm sure all of us find this encouraging after a year focused upon sickness and disease that indeed the day is coming when these frail bodies, these bodies that are prone to sickness and disease and ultimate death will be transformed into new bodies that will never fail us, never again a cold, never again the flu, never again COVID. I mean, you, th- you think of the joy that we will have in having bodies that will last for eternity. Can you believe it? That will, that will always be whole and healthy bodies transformed to be like the body of Christ himself. Now, the specific details of that were not told in the Bible. We have a little hint, for example, when Jesus in his glorified body appears in a room. Well, you and I can't do that. You know, Jesus, even in his earthly ministry, we never find an instance where that happened. He just appeared there, but he does in his glorified body. So maybe there will be greater capacities that God builds into the 2.0 version of, uh, of the human body that we will enjoy in heaven. But that, that's, that's for him to decide. You know, we, we really don't know that. All we do know is we can anticipate bodies that will function perfectly for us for all of eternity and be modeled after Christ himself. And we will be in a physical environment. So indeed, turn to Revelation 21, if you would, please. We'll actually look at Revelation 21 and 22 a fair bit. So you might want to keep your your finger there even if we look elsewhere. But notice in Revelation 20, uh, I'm sorry, 21, Verses 1 to 4, we read this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride for her husband. And I heard the voice of the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell with them, and and they shall be his people, and God himself will dwell among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And then also look at uh, verse 10 with me. He carried, he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So we have that repeated there also in verse 10 where the, 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 the new Jerusalem prepared for us to live in comes down out of heaven to earth. So indeed it indicates a physical environment. We are, we are created to live on the new earth. Now go to chapter 22. You'll see something interesting there. Right at the beginning of, of chapter 22 of Revelation, we read, Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming down from the throne of God, of the Lamb, and in the middle of the street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, isn't that interesting? Where are we located here in Revelation 22? We're back in Genesis 2, are we not? We're back in Eden with the tree of life. Now, it's, the tree is described here in greater ways than it was described in Genesis chapter 2 that, that we see here in Revelation 22. It, it has these, these leaves uh, and, and fruit for every month of the year and for the healing of the nations. So, indeed, there's an expansion of its beauty and glory and luster and its, and its capabilities, but nonetheless, the tree of life is there. So we are back in Eden, Eden improved, Eden that is greater than it was before. But nonetheless, new bodies in a new earth created by God, remade by God, to be earth dwellers, to live and have dominion over the earth as was his original mandate for humankind, to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and so on. So here we are back in the new Eden as those who will be in physical bodies. You know, it just reminds me again of, of uh, part of The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis. Uh, a couple of my very favorite scenes in that last part of the last battle is where the children in in heaven this is the new narnia the land beyond the children are running across this meadow and as they're running across this beautiful meadow they're noticing two things are different from their experience on the original earth the first one is this they're running faster than they have ever run in their lives they can't believe how fast they can run and secondly they're not getting tired They could just keep going. So it's Lewis's way of describing, yes, it's like life now, but it's better. Do you see it? There's this advance that takes place. And then the next scene that follows upon that is the children and the animals are all running across this meadow. They come to this pond where there's a waterfall on the far side. The, The children and the animals all dive into the pond and swim across it. And when they come to the waterfall, they swim up the waterfall. 
Isn't that beautiful? It's just Lewis's imaginative way of describing heaven that is greater than anything that we can fathom here on this earth now. So indeed, what a glorious thing. I I think for us today, uh, maybe an example of heaven versus earth now might be the kind of thing that Chip and Joanna Gaines do in their fixer-upper programs, right? My, My goodness, I mean, they transform these homes where they don't bring them back just to their original beauty. They make them better than you could even imagine they were when they were first built, right? So here is heaven that is not. So it's not that we have earth, the Eden and, and life on planet earth before sin, and then the fall, and then in redemption we come back to the same level. Oh no, it is restoration plus. The, the, this glorification is this enhancement, this greater expression of what God actually intended from the very beginning, but it can only happen through the history of creation, fall, and then redemption and glorification that would finally bring us to this physical environment that will be this great and glorious place we will live forever. Secondly, not only is heaven a physical place, but heaven is a place where God's presence abides fully. God's presence abides fully. You know, you might think of the whole of the Bible as the story of God coming nearer. It's a hard word to say, nearer, closer, closer to his people after Sin took place in Genesis chapter 3. God cast them out of the garden, set up the, 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 the sentry to guard them so they couldn't come back and eat of the tree of, the, of life. After that point that God banished them from the garden, the whole of the Bible is the story of God coming closer to his people, but on his terms, on his terms, right? So, for example, Mount Sinai, when Moses ascends the mountain, he instructs the people, do not cross this line. Do not ascend the mountain. If you do, you will die. Why, why does he want them to feel the weight of what it means to come into his presence? Because he is a holy God, and he can only be with holy people. So indeed, I mean, it's just beautiful. In the, in the book of Ephesians, where in chapter 1, we're told in verse 4 that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. You realize why this is the case? Why did God design from the very beginning that in the end we are made holy people, blameless before him? Answer? Because we can only be in his presence when we are remade holy people. In chapter 5, Paul writes to husbands, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that that he might sanctify her, that she might become dot, 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 end of verse 27, holy and blameless. So what the Father elected us to be, the Son accomplishes that work in his death on the cross to remake us so we can be in the presence of God where we will be. Look with me at Revelation 21 again, verses 3 and 4. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. Do you realize how significant this is? That God is dwelling with his people. He will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. 
And look at the intimacy of this. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is his personal care for each one of his children. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And then look over at chapter 22, verses 3 to 5. There will no longer be any curse for the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. Do you see there? So there, there indeed again, God is there with his people. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in this place and his bondservants will serve him. Verse four, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and there will no longer be any night. No longer will there be the need of, the, of a light or a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. So indeed, God's presence with his people, which is the great blessing of being in heaven. It's not the streets of gold. It's, it's not houses and land. It is we get God. That's the, that's the great good, is God. Why, why is that the great good? Where is beauty found? Only in God. Where, where is joy found? Only in God. Where is truth found? Only in God. Where is holiness found? Only in God. Any good thing you think of, you realize, is possessed by God and God alone in infinite fullness. So if we indeed are going to experience the joy of beauty and and goodness and, and, and love and holiness and truth, if we're going to experience those things, we must be with the one who is in his nature all of those things in infinite fullness. We must be with God. So indeed, being with him is the great gain, the great good that the gospel is all about. Justification, as important as that is, is a means toward an end. Right, we have to be declared righteous. Sanctification, whereby we are made holy in our very natures, is a means to an end. So we can be with him and experience all the goodness that is his poured out into our lives in an endless way, ceaseless way. So what a glorious thing to realize we, we will be with him, see him face to face and experience the joy of who he is. You know, one of my very favorite John Piper books, of many, of course, that I appreciate so much from his pen, is a little book that he wrote entitled, God is the Gospel, right? God is the Gospel, the good news. What is the good news of our salvation? Is it forgiveness of sins? Well, yes, it is. But is it ultimately that? No, it's not ultimately that. Is it, is it uh, justification? Yes, it is that. But is it ultimately that? No. All of those things are necessary elements for the great good, and that is God himself. So indeed, to be in his presence to be with him eternally, never again to be separated from him, to experience for eternity out of his infinite joy and goodness and holiness, what a joy that will be. Third, heaven is not only a place, it's not only where God's presence abides, but third, heaven is where God's peace pervades forever. 
God's peace pervades forever. And again, we've seen these verses, but I just want to focus again here uh, in verse 4 of, of chapter 21, Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have, have passed away. Verse 5, behold, he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. Do you wonder if it's really going to happen? Well, you can know that the one who promised this, who declared he will do it, is the one who never breaks a promise, never goes back on his word, is totally faithful and will bring it about that we enter into this, this everlasting experience of endless joy with him. Uh, just think of how much of our lives are consumed now with difficulties, with discouragements that we fight against in faith. We fight to trust God in the midst of this suffering, trust God in the midst of this affliction, trust God when these decisions are, are weighing upon us and we don't know what to do, when relationships are fragmented, when, when we think of how much of our lives are devoted to those kinds of issues. And the day is going to come, my friends, when none of those issues will be present any longer when there will be nothing but the experience of fullness of life, human flourishing in its maximal way as God brings about his peace to us. You know, the Hebrew word shalom, that probably all of us know that term. It's one of, one of the Hebrew words we do know. And that term shalom really does communicate not just peace as if there is kind of an absence of conflict or warfare, but rather this deep abiding sense of satisfaction, of joy, of fulfillment that there is in life. So indeed, God will bring this to us as he brings about the end of our sin and the fullness of our holiness as he remakes us to be like his son which we know was his purpose from the very beginning. How do we know that? Before creation. Romans 8, 29, whom he predestined, he, whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So indeed, the very purpose of God, <coughs> excuse me, the very purpose of God from the outset was to bring about in the end our conformity to be like Christ, our, our experiencing the joy of being made like him and with our Father who is in heaven forever and ever. Uh, third, he heaven is, I'm sorry, fourth, heaven is not only a place that is physical and real, God's presence abides there, it's where peace comes upon us forever and ever, but heaven is also where our prize will be enjoyed forever, our prize, and this really is at two levels, one is corporate and equal, and the other is individual and discriminate. That is, it's a relative degree of rewards that are given. But first, corporate and equal. There's a sense in which we all experience heaven when we are there 
Everyone knows the joy of being in heaven, the joy of being in the presence of the Lord, the joy of having tears wiped away, of having no more sorrow or death. We all experience that. So the corporate reality is true for all of us. And indeed, it's what God wants us to anticipate in this life even more, can you believe it, than the good things he may bring to us here and now. He wants us to anticipate the greater good that will be ours in heaven. Now, here's, here's my support for that claim, that when we think of our salvation, when we think of God's mercy to us, that what he wants us to think about foremost is what we will receive then. Let me show you a text. It's Ephesians chapter 2. Take a look there with me, if you would, please. Ephesians 2, it's a very famous passage where Paul describes our condition uh, in our sin before God's grace has been shown to us. Verses 1 to 3, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Uh, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging to the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So here we are, dead in our sins, uh, 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 slaves of Satan, and, and, and uh, standing under the wrath of God. But then verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that, okay, here it comes, my friends. Verse 7 is the purpose clause for why God has expressed his mercy to us desperate sinners, dead in our transgressions and sins. Why has he shown us this mercy? What, what is he planning for us? Here it is, verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So indeed, notice he skips over this life completely. You know, it's, it's like it doesn't really matter a whole lot in light of all that is coming then. The goal that God has is for the everlasting lives we will have with him forever in heaven so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his kindness. So, you know, I, I, I think of this analogy when I think of this verse. Uh, Jody, my wife, who will be here in the second service, um, had many, many ideas for our family that were so good. I mean, goodness, if I, as, if I as the husband and the father had shut off Jody's ideas, we would have been impoverished as a family because she had so many good ideas. Well, one of them was this. We would travel many times to, to visit our family on the West Coast. She's from Portland, Oregon. I'm from Spokane, Washington. So, and we lived in the Midwest. So we would travel out to see our families. And our two girls, Bethany and Rachel, uh, were small. And, uh, and it's a lot of driving in the car. You know, some, some summers we would travel 8,000 miles all together uh, when we you combine all the visiting and all the rest that took place. Well, so Jody said what one uh, time before we took off on this uh, long trip, she said, save a space in the trunk for a box that I want to reserve to put some, some presents in there. And, and, uh, and what I want to do is give the girls... Um, a present every day that they can open up in the car to make the trip just 
you know, be, be, be more fun and enjoyable. So I, you know, took a box and put it in there and made sure there was room for it when we packed the trunk, tight as it would be. And, uh, and sure enough, what a great thing this was. Every morning, I would, I would make them wait until we traveled 100 miles. You know, I'm the, I'm the dad, so I'm the tough guy. And, you know, ha- have to go 100 miles before you can open your presents. So they're holding them in their laps, you know, and so anxious to, okay, we've got 100 miles, you can open them up. And it was just some little thing, coloring book or some little game to play in the car. But Oh, how fun that was. Now, here's the analogy. Can you imagine God, in his infinite wisdom, has designed this never-ending outpouring of his kindness to us in Christ that will never end forever and ever. So, indeed, this is what God has prepared for us. And, and this comes to all of us. There is this sense in which this is equal, equally distributed to all people in heaven that experience this joy. But then secondly, there's also the individual and discriminate kind of rewards that are given in heaven. Look per- particularly at chapter 22, verse 12. Chapter 22, verse 12, where Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Ah, so indeed, this is not the general uh, reward that all of us receive as we enter into heaven with all of the blessings that are there, but these are discriminate rewards that are given depending upon the good works that we have done. Uh, You remember Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.10 said, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for what we have done in the body, whether good or bad. And so indeed this day will come before Christ where all of our works in, in our entire life are put out in front of us. Now, I don't know if this will be done publicly or privately. We'll, we'll let God decide that, right? He'll, he'll do it the right way. But this day will come when everything we have done, uh, good and bad, will be put out there, as it were, in front of our eyes to see. One of the purposes of this, I'm convinced, is this. It will be the first time in your life and mine when we see the complete sinfulness of our lives on display. Every uh, jealous thought, every wicked action, every inaction of things we should have done and didn't do, all of them put out there, we will see our sin in ways we never see now. We have selective memories. Uh, we, We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We forget so many things. But we will see it all then, and the one standing in front of us will be the Savior with nail-pierced hands who bore our sins in his body on the cross. I think it will be overwhelming when we see all that we have done and realize Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. But there will also be at that time the good things we have done and the rewards that will be given. And I I believe this is what Jesus had in mind when he said, for example, in Matthew 5, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. So this isn't the common reward given to all Christians that is equal for everyone. This is the discriminate the particular reward given to those who exhibit particular faithfulness, particular obedience, particular sacrifice. Similarly, in Matthew 6, 
When you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Similarly, similarly, when you pray, don't go out into the street and do that as the hypocrites do, but truly go, go instead to your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in what is done in secret will reward you. So indeed, these rewards will be given. Now, what form they take, uh, we can't be completely confident. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, you may know this, was, uh, uh, was inclined to think that these rewards would include the service that we had rendered in seeking to know God, to know his word and to know him in this life that would be rewarded by a greater understanding of God in the life to come. And he, he used this analogy. He said you could have three different sized containers, say a, a one-gallon, two-gallon, three-gallon container, and plunge all of them into the ocean. And, you know, you, using the, this, this vast, deep ocean as an image for God. So you, you plunge all of these into the ocean. They're all completely filled. If you, you know, looked at any of these containers and you say, is, is that container experiencing fullness of the ocean water? The answer is yes. But quantitatively, there's a difference, right? In which some, some of those containers have more than others uh, did. And that as a consequence of the ways in which we had sought after the Lord in this life. So indeed, that well may be the case. I, I, I like the example, this is one I came up with, uh, that I think depicts this, of imagining three people listening to a beautiful symphony, say the London Philharmonic. And one of them is a musical novice. The second one is quite proficient in music, but a far, far from being a professional musician. The last one is a professional composer, conductor. He can play every instrument on the, uh, on the stage. And they're all three listening to this beautiful concert, and when it's over, they all exclaim, that was glorious. So they all experience the joy of this concert that they have heard. But if you get into the minds of each one of them, you realize what they have in their minds as they say that was glorious. The first one, minimal understanding of what was going on musically. The second one, more. The third one, even greater would be the case. So perhaps something like that. Uh, honestly, we, we can only guess, though, in this life what those rewards will be, but that they will take place are clear in heaven. So indeed, both general but also individual and discriminate rewards that we will experience in heaven. And then finally, heaven is a place of expansive plurality of peoples. And I have that plural, peoples, who gather together in worship of the king. So, for example, take a look in Revelation 21, at verse 22, Revelation 21, verse 22. And here we read, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine, for the glory of the Lord has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Verse 24, the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean or anything who practices abomination or lying shall enter into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
Now, isn't this interesting that the nations, look at that phrase in verse 26, they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. So indeed, there will be something of human culture, of human nationality that is retained in heaven. It it is not the case that in heaven that we're all, you know, maybe some homogenous color. No, I think we will have the color of the ethnicities of life now. We, we will have red and yellow, black and white. You know, G- Jesus loves them all. We will have, uh, the, the nations of the world will, will be there. And of course, my conviction, I know your pastor's conviction is also, Israel will be there. Goodness, I mean, God is not gonna leave Israel as the only nation who doesn't get into this thing. Are you kidding? What, what's the capital city of the whole of it? Jerusalem. I think Israel is there. So Israel, a nation among with other nations in which God has has fulfilled his promises with Israel in a particular way uh, is expressed. And yet everyone benefits fully by what takes place there. So the, the promise of people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will be there in in this glorious place where ethnicity, culture is retained to some degree, it seems, from life here and now. You know, when I read these words, again, this is uh, speculative, so I can't say this for certain, but nonetheless, I can't help but think this may be the case. In verse 26, they, they bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. When I think what is most glorious about a nation At the top of the list would be their language, I would think. I mean, what are the French without French, right? I mean, you just they kind of lose everything, right? If they don't have that, Uh, so so might it not be that when the nations come in, they bring among other things their languages, and so the way the Tower of Babel is overcome is not as we all speak one common language, but rather as we speak all of the languages with full understanding uh, of every one of them as that is retained in the new heavens and earth. So indeed, uh, the, the, the age that God has prepared for us is one that is amazingly pluralistic in terms of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And it really is an argument uh, for understanding people of different ethnic groups now as one with us in Christ. If they're believers, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are closer to them than our next door neighbor who is not a believer. So indeed, one in Christ. Now, let's shift our, our focus from life then to life now. And uh, real briefly, let me go through five things with you for how we should live life now that is affected by understanding heaven then. The first one is this, is passion for Christ. Passion for Christ. To be in his presence, to see his face then will be our joy and delight. So should this not increasingly be the case now? Remember our conversion, our sanctification and ultimate glorification comes in seeing Christ. You remember this in in, uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, the way we grow in Christ, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord Jesus, we are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, that is in incrementally increasing degrees of glory, this is from the Lord the Spirit. So indeed the Spirit focuses our attention that we might be able to see Christ more now because in heaven we will see him fully. So indeed, should we not pursue now 
that the, the knowledge of Christ, the understanding of Christ, that the love for Christ, a passion for him, that will certainly be fulfilled in its greatest extent in heaven. Remember Paul said, to die and be with Christ is very much better. Indeed. So may we live now realizing Christ is the surpassing value that Paul speaks of in Philippians 3 that, that allows him to put all other things aside. I count all other things to, to, but rubbish that I may gain Christ and see in him that surpassing value. So passion for Christ is number one. Number two, purity of life. Purity of life. Peter makes this point in 2 Peter chapter 3. Since all these things are to be, to, to be destroyed, he's speaking of the heavens and earth that will be destroyed. Since all these things will be destroyed, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I think the key to understanding why should we live holy lives now in light of what's coming is that last phrase, in which righteousness dwells. If we realize life then is a life of perfect righteousness before God, doesn't that indicate that life now ought to be the pursuit of where we are one day heading? that is growing in holiness, growing in obedience, growing in faithfulness, growing in, in sanctified righteousness within our own lives as God remakes us. So indeed, purity of life now is the, is the course we need to take in order to prepare ourselves for and anticipate the fullness of what is coming in heaven. Third, perseverance in faith. It's interesting, if you read the uh, the letters to, to, the, to the seven churches that begin the, the book of Revelation in Revelation 2 and 3, all of them end with this same admonition. The one who endures to the end will experience, and, and then what is given to them varies in different ones, ones of these uh, churches that are described. But the one who endures to the end. So indeed, life now is life in which we are called to persevere. And, and part of what helps us persevere is knowing this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. So indeed, this recognition of what we will have one day that is certain and sure enables us to persevere through difficulties, persevere through persecution, we don't know, my friends, what will happen in this country in, in the coming 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And we, we just need to realize we need to prepare ourselves now for the realization of the opposition that may well increase. And so indeed, may God help us to be people who seek to be faithful no matter what and receive that great reward that will come in the end. Fourth, Pursuit of God's mission. With men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation united before the throne, how ought we to be about God's work of bringing people from those very lands and nations? 
I mean, you realize this is the mission's mandate of, of Christ that he gives us in Matthew 28. Go to the nations. Make disciples of them from every tribe and people and tongue and nation because the elect are those who are drawn in from all of those places. And indeed, we have the privilege as those who know the gospel, know the truth, to send people or to go ourselves and, and bring in those people from these various parts of, of the world. So our duty and our delight is to be witnesses for Christ and see the gospel spread throughout the world from which then believers will come and join together in heaven forever. And then finally, prayer. Prayer with fervency and focus. With so much at stake, both in terms of joy that we want to experience more all in, 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 in our relationship with Christ and in defeating sin and Satan and his assaults against us, both defensively and offensively, how fervent we ought to be in our prayers now because of the certainty of where God is bringing us in the end. So we know the hope we have. We know that we're on the side of the victor. We know nothing can stand against Christ and his purposes and, and his uh, goal in, in building his church. So praying now with fervency and with uh, a sense of urgency in knowing that God uh, honors the prayers of his people in bringing about things that, that will accomplish his design purposes forever and ever. So indeed, life then in heaven, as glorious as that is, informs us with life now. May God help us to be people who don't forget about heaven. Goodness, it's a reality that we should anticipate every day. And yet, instead of that understanding of heaven resulting in our apathy here, instead it inspires our activity here as we seek to honor Christ and live in faithfulness before him. Let's pray together.